The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Maybe there's a sense that a group of people gathering to look at fear and anxiety would mean we're all a bunch of misfits. <laughs> you spent a Saturday with a bunch of people talking about anxiety. Come on, get a clue. <laughs> so hopefully everybody has a name tag. If you don't, when we take a break, get a name tag on. So at least we can minimize that anxiety <laughs> of seeing somebody that we've seen so many times but don't remember their name. Oh yeah, you're... <laughs> I'm Mark, by the way, um, for those who might be brand new to the center. So we have this six hours or so now to do something that uh, probably any person not completely overwhelmed by life would be doing all life long, which is actually being curious about the experience of anxiety because it's really the gorilla in the room. And uh, the fact that a lot of the time human beings aren't openly, honestly acknowledging it with each other is uh, one of the symptoms, one of the sort of neurotic symptoms of not knowing what to do with anxiety that we often feel or unconsciously decide that ignoring it or pretending it's not there or you know other sort of not so skillful acts of, of closing down, that that's the best we can do with anxiety. And as I mentioned at the very end of the guided sit, just the fact of being interested in it, or even before, just the act of signing up to come to a workshop on anxiety, putting it out, acknowledging that it's here, changes changes our our relationship the mind's relationship to the experience because if it was if whatever our anxiety is about if that was an actual monster well we're not going to go look the monster in the eye we just don't do that with monsters we don't it's not appropriate you know we want them under the bed or in the closet or somewhere else not sort of in the room, the topic of conversation. This is why we often bump into really wholesome, skillful strategies like talking to a good friend about what we're feeling, like when things are really intense or overwhelming, because it's not so much the friend knows what to say, but just our willingness to speak out loud what we're feeling, what we're afraid of feeling, what we don't want to be feeling, but just to acknowledge that out loud, and we'll do a little bit of that today, ventilates it. It's like, how scary can it be if I can talk about it? We had a class on Thursday night, some of you might have been there with Terry Karras, understanding our racial selves, racial moments as spiritual practice. And, you know, this is another place where we have a lot of fear, like, uh, I mean, it manifests in different ways. Fear of being the one who's prejudiced or being the one who has a biased mind. <clears throat> uh, 
anxiety about wanting to present ourselves as somebody who's politically correct or beyond bias and prejudice. And a lot of us probably felt, you know, just being in a room where we're talking about the subject, just that is healing. So I'm looking forward to the day. And in a way, we're both, all of us rather, we're all responsible for making this day productive um, by acknowledging together and by asking questions and by um, somehow bringing up if, as much as we can what our life has already taught us today, up to this point, what our life has taught us about skillful and unskillful ways of relating to anxiety and the causes of anxiety and the causes for going beyond anxiety. And some of those causes for going beyond anxiety are temporary, but that's still nice to know. Oh, I can do this. It doesn't uproot that tendency of my mind to be afraid, to get tight, but it modifies it for a while. I get some space, some freedom for a while. That's good to know. And it's also good to know those places in our life where we had entrenched fear, and now it's just not there. You know, hopefully uh, the amount of social anxiety we had as a teenager has dissipated over the years. Maybe some of you are still teenagers, but most of us are long gone from being a teenager. And some of those things that were so intense at some point in our life, maybe now, even in when conditions are challenging, we just don't take the bait like the mind just doesn't take the bait like it used to. We can't get caught in the way caught and cycle through spin, you know, with terror and anxiety and whatever for as long, as intensely as we might have in the past. And sometimes people describe it, and we'll have time later in the afternoon when we talk about sort of the big anxiety around death, you know, it's almost like uh, getting forced into something but then coming out the other end. We may have gone into it screaming, scratching, struggling as if our life depended on it, but then we get through the other end. Our partner who had a life-threatening illness either died or recovered. But the important thing, I mean, I'm not, not an important thing in terms of our partner, but the important thing, or our loved one, is that what felt like it was going to kill us or destroy us in some way, now, looking back, it was just that really intense, difficult thing. And so, going forward, we now, the mind is now the mind that went through that experience. And all of us, I mean, even if you're one of the rare people who hasn't lost somebody close to you, either through divorce or breakup or death or any other way that might have happened, we've all gone through those, what do they call them, those uh, crucibles, you know, where it was the, the basic 
feeling, the basic sense of the mind is, I can't do this, this is not okay. And the, the response, the reaction was, I'm going to do whatever I can to make this not happen or to deny it or to pretend it ain't so or because it feels existentially threatening for this to be happening. Some of you probably have had panic attacks in your lives and uh, most people eventually have one or two. Some people have them more regularly. But it's, it's just this basic experience of fear and terror and anxiety. Uh, and the mind's response to it feeds it, right? So that's why it's just increasing, increasing until something happens. This is the interesting thing about panic attacks. It's like people who have panic attacks regularly, it's hard for them to honestly acknowledge the fact that that it's happened a hundred times. Because the mind is convinced that it's the worst or scariest thing. So it doesn't even want to sort of remember. It builds, it builds, it builds, it becomes completely... And then what happens? What changes? So there is this very real dance that we've all been dancing for a long, long time. And uh, one way it's talked about is the, you know, you could talk about it, the dance of hope and fear. I remember um, studying in this yogic tradition long ago in the 80s, um, not yoga like we think of now in hot yoga and <laughs> yoga studios. It's all about the postures. But yoga, the yogic tradition is really a, a very similar mystical tradition as Buddhism. Buddhism and this sort of yogic tradition lived side by side in northern India or most of India for many, many hundreds of years until Buddhism got wiped out um, like the 10th century in, in India. So they informed each other back and forth. There was very alive and healthy discussion, philosophical, religious, spiritual discussion, interaction for all those centuries. So like almost 15 centuries in India. And uh, one of the teachers uh, in this tradition always made the point, whenever there's hope, there's fear. Or, you know, in terms of this workshop today, wherever we have hope, whatever we're hoping for, there's anxiety. And it's, it's more dynamic. I mean, we're, we're, we're actually constructing the experience of anxiety almost always whenever we're seeking safety and getting established in some safe sense. You can't have a sense of safety in a more ordinary sense, like feeling good about your partner, feeling good about the house or apartment you've put together, feeling good about the health in your body. These very ordinary things, to the degree the mind is allowed to become dependent, 
then mostly as a shadow under the level of consciousness, there's the anxiety of not that, you know, that changing or that going away or that not being the way we think it is. So this is the stance of hope and fear. And this has been talked about for a long time. It's been understood. Let me read a little bit from, I shared this recently in one of the other classes, so you might have heard it recently, but it really speaks to what we're talking about today. And this comes from um, this ancient uh, character in Tibetan Buddhism, somewhat like the patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism. And the person's name is Milarepa. And I'm reading now from uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. But there are many books, texts that talk about Milarepa. So uh, once Milarepa went back to his cave after having a comforting vision of his teacher, Marpa, who really pulled him out of a very dark place. So he had a lot of devotion, a lot of gratitude toward his teacher. He went back to his cave and he was confronted with a gang of demons. And he tried every way he could think of to get rid of them, all kinds of tactics. He threatened them. So these are inner demons, you know, our own fears, anxieties, hopes and dreams, and the fear of not getting or reaching our hopes and dreams. So he tried every way to get rid of them, threatening them, cajoling them, preaching the Dharma to them, but they would not leave until he ceased regarding them as bad and open to them and saw them as they were. This was the beginning of Milarepa's period of learning how to subjugate the demons which is the same as transmuting the emotions. It is with our emotions that we create demons and gods. Those things which we don't want in our lives and world are the demons. Those things which we would draw to us are the gods and goddesses. The rest is just scenery, right? So uh, Trumpa Rinpoche is saying in his comments that as a practitioner... The only thing that's important for us to start paying attention to are how we're creating gods and demons. How we're out of habit turning um, our emotional lives into gods and demons. Isn't it true that when we have a sublime emotion, we just love it. And we want it, we want to build our life around it. And when we have a really terrifying an emotion that's really hard to bear, to touch, we just want it gone. I mean, it's amazing to what ends we'll go to avoid feeling something when we're feeling yucky. I mean, the kinds of distractions, I mean, speaking for myself, but I think it's pretty universal, the kinds of distractions that I'm willing to pick up and pursue and engage in over and over that are so incredibly unproductive, but somehow appear to be better than just feeling what I'm feeling, right? And how dependent my mind can be on holding to the distraction. It's like I need something. Feed the beast of distraction because the alternative is to just feel what we're feeling. And I like how he says the rest is just scenery, meaning 
don't get absorbed in the rest. Notice the hopes and fears. Now he has more here. He says, By being willing to accept the demons and gods and goddesses as they are, Milarepa transmuted them. They became, now in the Tibetan tradition, they call them dakinis, or the energies of life. The sort of emotions as a, emotions in the most broad, deep sense of the word. So all that moves us. You can think like in, uh, in Buddhism, these might be considered more of a feminine quality. And, and also, like in the Hindu yogic mystical tradition of Shiva and Shakti. Some of you know the symbology of Shiva and Shakti. So Shiva is more the destructive force, and Shakti is more the creative, feminine creative force. And they dance together. They play together. That's the world we live in. There's destruction and there's creation. And neither are good nor bad. It's just how it is. This is the world. It's always been this way, always will be this way. So we need to appreciate that when we uh, transmute the emotional energies, then they become the energies of life, the dance of life, of Shiva and Shakta, destruction and creation. So there's another chapter in Milarepa's life. In this chapter, thousands of demons assembled to terrify and attack Milarepa, right? The perfect storm when all of our deep and dark, fearful places have gotten triggered. For whatever it is, you know, we did something humiliating and then the wrong person found out about it and then we made a bigger fool of ourselves trying to cover up the stupid thing that we did and then, you know, and then you can just go on and on from there and then you pass gas or something like that. (laughs) So it's like everything bad happens. So he he does his normal thing, you know, preaches to them, open, accepting, willing to offer them his whole being and they are all subjugated. At one point, the five demonesses beginning to realize that they cannot frighten Milarepa Sing to him. So this this is what we mean by transmuting our emotional energies, right? It's just stuff, mental, emotional stuff happening. We think those despicable qualities are parts of our mind, our dark memories, our dark desires, you know, the things that we're afraid of. <clears throat> we think that they are inherently evil and have to be destroyed. But it may be more useful, it is more useful to think of them as something to be understood. We transform them or transmute them by understanding them. They're, they're um, fearful or they're um, scary because we misunderstand them. We see them as this. And then they're scary. So... Um, these demons and demonesses, they become teachers. They're there, whatever we're feeling, whatever we're experiencing, we're, the transmutation, the sort of the deep movement out of a life of anxiety and fear into a life toward freedom and release is a change in our understanding, not because we always think of it in terms of purification. If I could just be the person who isn't afraid of this. You know, and like in psychological terms, we practice desensitizing ourselves 
to the thing we're afraid of. So if we're afraid of heights, we stand on three steps, and then we stand on four steps, and then we decide to sleep in a treehouse, and you know, and on and on like that until it's no longer a problem. Or, you know, if we're afraid of water, well, then we, you know, hang around the shore and then we do this and then we do that and then eventually we can sort of float on a, you know, on a air mattress in the middle of a lake and we're not freaked out. So it's that desensitization is really useful and we can learn a lot. But the deeper learning is to see that the fears, as soon as they're arising, that it's a teacher. It's teaching us something. And so this is what the teacher, like in a very metaphorical and, and beautiful, beautifully ornate Tibetan Buddhist way, this is what those demonesses did. They transformed again, transformed again into these energies of life and sang or chanted to Milarepa. If the thought of demons never rises in your mind, you need not fear the demon hosts around you. It is most important to tame your mind within. And then here's the kicker. On the steep path of fear and hope, they lie in ambush. So not taming our mind means we're on the steep slope of fear and hope. We're living a life. So the energies of life, the emotions of life are all about fear and hope. That's the ordinary state for us human beings. Fear and hope. And uh, that's where the demons, that's where the monsters lie in waiting. When we're along that steep slope of fear and hope, then we're actually in danger. Because we, the mind itself, creates the danger by misunderstanding. And later, Milarepa says, insofar as the ultimate or the true nature of being is concerned, there are neither Buddhas nor demons. He who frees oneself from fear, he or she who frees oneself from fear and hope, evil and virtue, will realize the insubstantial and groundless nature of confusion. Samsara, the cycles of suffering, will then appear to be the path itself. The freedom is right here. So in later Buddhist traditions, they make a big deal of samsara, the cycles of suffering, and freedom are one. They're not two different places. Because our more linear, more dualistic mind thinks this is sort of hellish, having a body, being vulnerable, living with uncertainty, not having everything I want, having things I don't want in my life. And then, then heaven becomes not that. And then we're in this anxious world that I'm here and I need to get there and I don't know how to get there and have you already gotten there? And why have you gotten there and not me? Or I'm further towards there than you are. And it just creates all this fear and anxiety and comparing and judgment and tightness in our mind. So how do we go beyond that? That's the purpose of our time together today. How do we modify this experience and how do we actually uproot this experience and you know already I'm sure you have a sense that it has to do with our living in this world that is uncertain and insecure and changing 
and how our mind understands that. Like, is that actually a mistake or a problem that the world is insecure, uncertain, ungovernable? Is that a problem? There's a beautiful poem from um, Havis, who uh, was a Persian poet long ago, and it's called Tripping Over Joy, this translation. What is the difference between your experience and the experience of a saint, that of a saint? So a saint meaning somebody beyond anxiety. And the person answers, the saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God, nature, you could say, in our terms, and that the beloved has just made, right, God or nature, has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and singing, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. And you see, doesn't that give us a flavor of where anxiety comes from? We're convinced we should be the one with a thousand serious moves. Like how I'm going to do this thing called life. I mean, here is the most amazing thing. We all know intellectually like how it all works. There's birth and aging and death. Whatever we accumulate gets taken from us, whatever us is, (laughs) whatever we are. We know that. And yet we live our life in order to survive. It's like, that's the basket we put all our eggs. Knowing that we don't survive, that we don't take anything with us, all of our intelligence, all of our life energy is devoted to surviving. Even though we know it's not that sort of physical survival, that permanence of possession, the information, the knowledge I gather is going to be mine. We know it doesn't last that way, and yet that's what we pursue for security. So it makes a lot of sense that anxiety is a common emotion because our basic approach to life doesn't really add up. But it's what we know, but because it doesn't add up, we, we, there's this semi-conscious suspicion that we're wasting our time. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean we shouldn't work out or eat healthy food or put money in the bank or, you know, study. Like uh, sometimes people, when they retire, they go start taking classes. And there's a sense, you know, well, why are you doing that? You're going to die in 15, 20 years. Why do you want to know Spanish? It's too, it's too late, <laughs> you know. You're not going to be able to use it much or... I see that in my mind are, are people who are fascinated by certain things. Um, I have a friend or somebody I know well who's an older person in her mid-80s. You know, and just fascinated by different things and that you can watch on television, you know, the sort of documentaries about this and that. And I notice that coming up in my mind that... and. I think this is, like I mentioned earlier, we do want to be relatively skillful at things that modify the experience of anxiety. Maybe don't make it go away, but modify it to some degree. Like filling our lives up with activities that are relatively harmless. 
they don't resolve the experience of anxiety, but they mask it or repress it, suppress it maybe uh, in some way. Like having some routines or like being interested in different things, being, you know, an avid knitter or, you know, somebody interested in French Renaissance art or whatever it might be. But as a practitioner, we want to be interested in the mind's maybe deepening dependence on those activities, whether the activity is having your you know, hour of nightly entertainment where you don't have to think or be, you can just absorb into some entertainment that some really smart people have spent a lot of energy creating and then we get to go get lost in that bubble for a while. But unfortunately, you know, if we don't notice the dependency we have on these mundane entertainments or um, hobbies or activities, routines, because it could be hanging out with friends or just having a routine where you get up in the morning and you make your tea and you sit down and you look out the window and watch the birds at the bird feeder petting your cat while you drink your tea. Even these relatively harmless and, and often beautiful routines, if what we're doing is cultivating a dependence, then we're cultivating the fear of that being interrupted and finding there's no green tea to make this morning's cup. Or we're wondering, like even the anxiety of wondering, is there a better green tea? Or, you know, this, my cat's perfectly healthy and fine, but she won't always be here, right? And so the anxiety of knowing, even knowing that it won't always last, or that the birds will fly south. So even now we can be anticipating the fall when the birds leave. So we want to notice that as good as our routines work in terms of modifying anxiety and fear, the structures that we put together, and we should use these strategies of putting together wholesome routines. So I'm not dismissing this. We all have to do this, even including wholesome entertainments, you know, whatever they might be for you. That, I mean, entertainments that modify the experience of anxiety and don't add too many bad notions to our mind or reinforce bad notions in our mind. So relatively wholesome entertainments. But we want to let them become teachers. So not just this blind activity that we do because it modifies our experience, but because it actually teaches us something. Like, okay, this is what I get and this is what the mind loses. This is the temporary release, temporary space I get from anxiety. And this is the this is the present moment experience of dependency, the needing it. And the feeling, you know where you see that neediness is when the show is over. The teacup is empty. And then you have to that transition. Those transitions are very interesting. Because we tend to want to go from an absorption here to an absorption in the next activity. But as a practitioner, we want to get interested in the death of this activity 
and the nakedness of not having that activity because the cup is done, the TV show is over, hanging out with my friend is done now. And there's that moment, those moments of being naked before the next thing gets set in motion. And we, in a sense, like in a Buddhist sense, we would say we get reborn then into the next moment of our existence. Oh, now I'm the person who's going to clean up my dishes in the, in the sink. Now I'm the getting born into the person who's getting ready for bed. Now I'm getting born into the person who has to get themselves out of bed and ready for the day. And all these birth and death, so instead of existing in the activity, in who we think we are in that activity, we're getting more interested in the activity ceasing and the anxiety arising because we're in this transition into becoming the next person who's doing this thing. And the birth and death, like how good it feels to get born into, to get absorbed into. So for this period of time, I don't have to worry about my to-do list. I don't need to worry about dying. I don't need to be worried about global warming or anything that produces anxiety because I'm just, I've got, my life is defined. I'm the one who has to drive from A to B and I'm going to absorb into that. Or I'm the one who's taking care of my cat or taking care of my parent, my, my older parent where we just are absorbed into that activity. Because if, we get, if we're fortunate and we have enough routines, enough activities in our life that are relatively wholesome, and we can jump from one to the next, we can get to, through life without much anxiety on the surface. We're just too busy with wholesome, relatively wholesome activities filling our life. That we can be unaware at how fragile the ground is. There really isn't really anything here except this leapfrog from one absorption in this activity to leapfrogging into the next activity, into the next, and then at the end of the day, so exhausted, just fall asleep, absorb it into that activity, wake up, jump out of bed. And you'll see this in people and in yourself, easier to see often in other people, of the constant jumping. And you might be able to detect in that person how dependent they are in their schedule, in their routines, in their obsessions, in their, you know, what they think is important in their life. They might not get it, but you might be able to sense it. And then hopefully then it triggers the question, well, what about me? How am I living in that way? And again, we don't want to stop this because it's important. You know, filling our lives up with plans, like that joke, how do you make God laugh? Make plans, right? But some people have good enough fortune that their plans manifest to some degree. And that's their only strategy that they know until you would think this is being uh, unfortunate but it might be a great fortune until they, their plans don't turn out. No matter how careful the plans were, it just, you know, causes and conditions conspire against them and they can't, they don't. And then the person begins to wonder, oh, I thought if I was careful enough, confident enough in my planning that I can 
make things happen. Things that are at least good enough happen. But now I realize that I don't, ha- I don't hold all the cards. There are a lot of things at play, and even with a lot of competent planning, they may not turn out the way I want them to turn out. I mean, we've seen this. We don't tend to reflect on this very deeply, but we've seen people who've had, had their act together, who, who have lives that, you know, on the surface, in terms of health or financial well-being and things like that, can fall apart. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.